Welcome to BIB Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. And I'm Tyler Orton. BIB is once again seeking BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards. Nominations close July 30th, so go ahead to BIV.com slash events for more information. And a range of innovative disruptive technologies have emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. Join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to discuss helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information there, too, go to BIV.com slash events. This week marks the one-year anniversary since the BC NDP formed government through an alliance with the Greens. Throughout the week, BIV Today is taking a look at the most significant developments for the province since last summer. On the latest show, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, he shares his thoughts on where the province's economy stands right now under the current premier. Later on, the BIB tech panel discusses the glitches plaguing Amazon Prime Day. I'm still trying to get on there. I, I as, don't blame you. <laughs> as well as how competitors have tried to match the e-commerce giant on this annual sales day. And later on, of course, the panel is going to take a look at when we have to look at how Elon Musk's social media conduct is eroding investor confidence. But first, here's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. July 18th marks one year since the BC NDP was sworn into office. And from pipeline politics to perpetual questions hanging out over the housing markets, it's been a very memorable year, I'd say that, for British Columbia. And our guest, he's had an up-close view of it all from the opposition benches. Joining us today to offer his perspectives on the current government, it is BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show today. Great. Good to be here. So tell us, it's been a pretty memorable year. And I think one of the things that's going to stick out to a lot of people is maybe the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. We've seen our relationship with Alberta wasn't going so well right now. And we've even had Ottawa come out and nationalize this pipeline. I want to know, I mean, let's say your positions were reversed. You were in the premier's office. How would you have handled the situation as we've seen it unfold over the last six, seven months? Well, the upshot today is that we as federal taxpayers have bought a $4.5 billion pipeline that we don't know how to operate, and we're about to embark on a $7 billion expansion project that we don't know how to build. And all of this is because of John Horgan's pigheadedness. And what we have in return is a lawsuit that's going nowhere. So this is a bad outcome for British Columbia. It could have readily been managed much better if the NDP had not been so ideological and as I say, pig-headed in their approach to uh, construction in this province. Was there um, an, an earlier opportunity, do you think, for the federal government to at least apprehend what John Horgan was going to be about with this project and and perhaps bring through uh, the system uh, once your government was defeated last year, uh, some of the, uh, you know, to kind of break the impasse at a legal and even a constitutional sense? Well, the federal government had a number of choices, and they were fairly late to the game with their decisive approach. Uh, Throughout, I give them credit for being consistently supportive of the concept, but their execution of it could have been better and earlier. It's interesting to note that the vast majority of the First Nations along the route were supportive of the project, and yet at the same time, uh, the federal government hung back and decided at the last minute to buy the project out as a, a way to solve the problem. 
Is there some irony that perhaps you and your government, if it was uh, consisting through this uh, current term here, it would have been more on board with the provincial government, the NDP government and Alberta with regards to this issue? There would have been a lot more congruity going forward. Well, I think that's a political anomaly in that NDP governments in most places favor public sector employment over private sector employment. And we're seeing that in British Columbia, where we've had a net loss of 40,000 private sector jobs in the last 12 months and a positive growth of 20,000 public sector jobs. And of course, we can't all work for the government. And so the concern we have is that we need that private sector employment and a capital investment in British Columbia, and we're seeing it disappear. And I suppose it's interesting that in Alberta, the NDP have had to come to their senses and realize they do have to encourage the private sector, but that's not the case in British Columbia. In this case here, of course, you've got uh, an alliance between two parties that uh, that then outnumber the Liberals in the legislature. I want to get your appraisal of, um, of how their covenant has uh, worked out, where you think it actually might have succeeded in some respects, but also where you think the uh, the deficiencies have been. Well, the NDP have succeeded in co-opting the Greens to vote for them, and the Greens, uh, as everyone has noted, vote 100% for the NDP program, even though they complain about it and make noise. So at the end of the day, we have a Green Party that really stands for nothing other than staying in power, and their sole goal is to get their proportional representation uh, program passed so that they can guarantee themselves jobs for life in the legislature. This is not in the public interest. Uh, The Greens talk about collaborative government, and they've been anything but. They've been very uh, difficult for us to get along with and openly saying offensive things about my party. So they're not living up to their promises or their principles, and they're basically been co-opted by the NDP completely. Well, on the topic of proportional representation, it seems as if you talk to one person in the street, they say that it's guaranteed to be in the bag pro PR. You talk to another person on the street and they say, no, there, there's no way this will ever come to pass. There, there's a lot of mixed messages that we're seeing here. What are your concerns about having proportional representation, at least the way that it's being outlined here in British Columbia, going forward in this province? There are many, many concerns, but it starts with voter apathy and indifference and gets to the next stage of voter uh, lack of information and in that most people have no idea what's being talked about. They'll be sent a mail-in ballot, and there'll be very low participation in that process because people won't uh, take the time or bother to fill out the ballot. And when they do see the ballot, it's very, very confusing to fill it out. So there are going to be lots of spoiled ballots, and we see this as a fundamentally undemocratic exercise. We know who wants this. It's the Green Party. They're the ones who initiated the idea. They're the ones who will benefit from it. And, of course, the concern is that this is going to involve very few people in terms of a fully informed voting public. And with a low voter turnout, the NDP have decided that 50% plus one uh, vote in favor of, that it must be implemented regardless of the low turnout. What will be your principal uh, messages in the campaign that lay ahead here around PR? The concern is lack of representation. You know, I just came back from Cornell, Vanderhoof and Prince George, And the people in Quinnell and Vanderhoof realize that their representation will basically disappear. They will be subsumed into a much larger riding, which could encompass the northern half of British Columbia geographically, which has only about 300,000 people in it. And so they will lose any contact with their local representative, and it matters a great deal there because the areas are so huge. In the lower mainland, it's the opposite problem that... uh, Here in the city of Vancouver, East Vancouver could be one huge riding, and people will have that sense of loss of who their representative is. 
Once you get past that, you get to the issue of uh, MLAs being chosen off party lists by the party bosses. Mm -hmm. This is not a voter engagement exercise. This is a party engagement exercise. And the beneficiaries are political parties and the party bosses become all powerful. If it wins, does your own party face the challenge of perhaps being disrupted and with perhaps a, the, you know, a, a, the rise of a, a BC Conservative Party again? Well, there's no doubt that there will be a proliferation of parties in British Columbia if, if PR goes through along religious, ethnic, and geographic lines, and that is not going to be good for British Columbia. We'll get special interest parties that favor their own interests, as we've seen all around the world when PR comes into place. And if they get into a position of controlling the balance of power, then their one particular interest will be uh, put forward and advanced, whether it's abolishing a particular tax or giving them something for free. That's not good. And so far in our caucus, we have an extraordinarily high level of unity, even though we are a very big tent politically. We have yeah. a wide range of opinions, and all of the people in our caucus are firmly behind the party going forward with or without PR. So you don't worry that there could be a splintering of your own party? I think the people in our party have realized that the vehicle to success is sticking together, and they realize that uh, messy coalition governments decided by backroom bosses is not the way to go. So I'm less concerned about our own parties uh, splintering than I am about the proliferation of special interest parties. Uh, speaking of that proliferation, I, I have to believe that if it came to pass, we, we definitely get a resurgence of the uh, the marijuana party that always uh, makes an appearance on ballots uh, across the Well, their office. timing is, is perhaps going to be pretty good in this case exactly. because you've got the introduction of it. And, and I am curious uh, from your perspective, Mr. Wilkinson, with the cannabis uh, coming into uh, effect with regards to the legal recreational market as of October 17th, where are we right now with this hybrid model that's being introduced to British Columbia with both the private retailers as well as the public sector that's going to be involved? Well, we've been very clear throughout that we think that marijuana legalization leads to a number of questions at the local level. And first of all, there has to be a very strict regime to prevent sales to children. It's going to make its way out to children, but we shouldn't have the state endorsing or permitting that. Secondly, the people involved in marijuana retail sales have to be closely scrutinized to make sure we're not just legalizing organized crime. And the third thing is that municipalities have to be able to choose whether or not they want to be in their community. And Richmond has been very clear that they want no marijuana retail sales in their community. And lastly, uh, the idea of having a state-run cannabis store opening right next to a state-run liquor store is just creating union jobs. And we don't think the role of the state is in that. We should have private sector uh, retail sales that are closely regulated and policed. Speaking of uh, of Union jobs, of course, the premier has announced this week uh, that infrastructure projects are going to be tied into the BC Building Trades Union, and uh, that has, uh, of course, got the contractors uh, very, very worried about what their futures are like. Uh, were you surprised to see this coming? Uh, not particularly. This is the NDP showing their true colors, and you have to remember that since 2005, they've received more than $20 million in uh, political donations from these uh, unions and what they've done is turn around and pay them off. I mean, this is a shameful exercise of political power to pay off donors. And it's done directly. It's not even done by saying uh, that government will contract with employers who will then hire union labor. It's done by saying government will create the hiring hall company and pick the workers from their favored unions. I mean, this is one step short of flat out corruption. And so it's really sad to see that the NDP have gone back to their worst instincts that they had in the 1990s, and they've done it so quickly. 
this is an aggressive move by the building trade unions to uh, line their pockets. And you got to remember that, as it's noted in the Vancouver Sun today, the workers themselves can make the same or more in a non-union environment as they do in a union environment. The differential, the extra cost, goes into the pockets of the unions, not the workers. Well, I don't think it would be an episode if we did not bring up the housing market here in British Columbia. We've had the new government over the last year. We've seen them introduce a so-called speculation tax. I, I often use speculation in uh, quotation marks when I'm talking about it. How about schools? Put, put that one in yeah, well, quotations that's too. Another one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've also seen an increase in the foreign buyers tax. I'm curious, what would you like to see the government doing to address this affordability crisis that is, is really hitting more and more people across the province, especially as the population gets older and we see more young people get into the buying market? Well, I was just looking on Google Maps this morning because I'm going to Coquitlam and noting that around this uh, Cantaline stations, the Evergreen Line stations, there are enormous parking lots in all directions. And we think, there's no shortage of buildable land in the lower mainland. What we have is a lack of will and a lack of supply of construction land to get on with building the housing that's needed. British population goes up by about 60,000 people every year, and it has done for the last 30 years, except in the late 90s when people left because of the NDP. And so if you look at the idea of a million more people coming to the lower mainland, where are they going to live? And the answer is we've got to build a whole lot more housing. We have to get on with it and anticipate it and build transit that matches that housing supply. We have the available land where there's a will, there's a way. And let's uh, convert parking lots into livable spaces. How would you assess the performance of the NDP government in terms of the own, its own measures here on housing and housing affordability in the months since it's taken power? Well, one year ago, we heard they were going to build 114,000 housing units. That got boiled down to 1,700 rental units. So it's going to take them 67 years to satisfy that promise. We're seeing basically nothing happening on the housing front in terms of supply. What we're seeing is onerous taxation dressed up in fake names like a school tax that has nothing to do with schools. And this is supposed to solve the housing problem. In fact, what we're seeing is a huge slowdown at the upper end of the housing market. We're hearing from numerous contractors all over the province that they are delaying or stopping projects and we're starting to see some unemployment appear in the construction trades. So this is not the way to solve the housing crisis by destroying demand and putting people out of work. The way to solve it is by employing those people to build more housing. Yeah. You, of course, uh, assumed the leadership of the party uh, throughout the, the last year and um, I want to get your own sense of uh, what the job feels like as a fit and um, and what you've set out as priorities for your party because even though you you won the the election in a in a sense of the vote you you don't hold power and and uh, there must be some reconsideration of where the party has to go in order to regain power would share some thoughts on this well, it's been a great experience uh, taking on leadership of this party because the uh, competitors for leadership have come on board fully and are strongly supportive of my leadership. We've got a very united party. We've got a strong caucus. And in the communities that I've been visiting all over BC, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm for moving ahead as a party and dealing with the NDP and winning the next general election. So that's in great shape. We've also had excellent reception from uh, widespread communities, whether it's the childcare workers and operators who are very fed up with the NDP plan or in terms of small business. Um, those folks are very keen to support us and move forward as a united um, effort in British Columbia. So it's going very, very well. The challenge, of course, is 
getting the word out and getting out to meet 4.8 million people in this great big province. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing every day. It, and yet uh, there are some vestiges of, uh, of time and power now that uh, appear to have a great deal of publicity attached to them. Of course, uh, you know, singularly the recent Peter German report on money laundering, uh, some of the uh, publicity attended to ICBC, BC Hydro, and so on. Uh, in a lot of ways, have, do you feel like you've got to um, reclaim the party's place or, or rework some of its principles in order to then successfully move forward? Well, we fully expect the NDP to be trashing us as much as they can for 16 years of solid economic growth and prosperity in this province. And in the meantime, in 12 months, they've managed to slow down the economy and destroy 40,000 private sector jobs. But that's to be anticipated. What we have to do is put out that forward-looking vision for British Columbia, and we're developing that right now. And we'll continue to do that through our convention in the fall to be ready for the next general election. Yeah. Do you, I've heard from both NDP and Liberals that they do expect an election sooner than 2021. What's your anticipation? Well, there's an interesting uh, dilemma coming up this fall with LNG Canada yeah. appearing to be interested in proceeding with the uh, gas pipeline across northern BC and the LNG terminal in Kitimat. And we'll see what happens with the NDP Green Coalition and whether the Green actually do have any principles at all, because they have said that they would oppose it, but they've been slavishly voting with the NDP 100% of the time for the last year, and we'll see if they actually have any backbone this fall. Well, we'll be keeping in touch with you in the meantime. And uh, Andrew, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Well, thanks for your time. Good to speak with you. That's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. The BIB Tech Panel joins us next to discuss Amazon Prime Day and Elon Musk's social media habits. Well, from Amazon Prime Day to Elon Musk's questionable social media conduct, joining us today to talk about the most notable news in the tech sector, it is Ali Pordad. He's a CEO of Progressa calling in from Toronto. And Amiel Lake, she is an entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC, and she's also the co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. Ali, Amiel, thank you guys both for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having us. So I don't know about you guys, but I are you, are you tried, still trying to get on? I'm still I, I'm trying. I'm still trying to get on. Still Amazon trying to get on, on Prime, Prime Day. Prime, yeah, right? I kept getting dead it's, links it's every gonna, single it's time. It's going to be Prime Week. Well, exactly. It's a Prime. <laughs> it's an Amazon. Amazon Prime Month. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they need to come up with another name for Prime now. Well, did, did, did you have trouble getting on, Amiel? Did you? Or, or I must admit, you're gonna I have, did not shop this unbirthday celebration no. shopping. Well, maybe you save yourself a little bit of stress, though, because, yeah, other shoppers, not just us, were having issues with this. And I'll, I'll throw this to you, Emil. I mean, do you think that this could actually hurt Amazon's reputation at all? Or do you think people are just so excited about these Amazon <laughs> Prime Days that they'll go through every single Christmas glitch? in July? Yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, right. They'll endure all these glitches just to get like whatever deal they can nab, essentially. Oh. I gave up personally. I was just like, ah, whatever. It'll probably hurt them temporarily. I don't think it'll hurt them in the long run at all. It's just yeah. way too convenient. You buy something, it shows up at your door. Two days later, they have, what, 150 million plus subscribers. There's no way that this is going to have any long-term effect. And I checked the stock today. It's up. Uh, there was news about Jeff Bezos being newly minted yeah, as the 150 billionaire. <laughs> 50 billionaire, yeah. They have, come up with a new, they have to come up with a new kind of concept for billionaire now. When, just you, just when like, you're at 150, yeah. you have yeah. to come up with like a 
I he, know. He's striving for a trillion. That's what he's striving for. Yeah. Well, he is, he, I guess you could call him a zillionaire for the time being mm-hmm. until he gets to being a trillion. Everyone would know what you mean, though, by yeah, zillionaire. Yeah, this yeah, exactly. Or a kajillionaire. Yeah, kajillionaire. Yeah, good. But I, the thing that I did note, though, is Amazon came out and said that you know they actually had uh, sales grow yeah. uh, in the first 10 hours more than they had versus last year. But from your perspective, Ali, I, I am curious about the fact that Amazon's also putting it out there that said they sold, quote, unquote, millions of devices tied to the Alexa platform. They're really doing a good job at getting Amazon into people's homes. Do you think that this is going to be, I guess, one of the key things that they're going forward with just to become ever present in our lives? I mean, I think they're going to have to do this, Tyler, to sort of fend off the competition at this point, because, you know, beyond the Amazon product itself and what's available through it, the deals are not really that great on Amazon anymore. I think, you know, sort of the jig is up and there's a lot of competition. You know, you have eBay, you have Google, Best Buy, Walmart. These are all, you know, large conglomerates slash retailers in the U.S. and worldwide that are not just sitting around waiting for Amazon to, you know, reduce prices. They are coming in even more aggressively with deals, even on Amazon Prime Day. So I know I was just, I was Googling around yesterday when I was shopping on Amazon just to get a sense of what else was out there and the best deals were not even on Amazon. No, I, I was getting some of those same lovely uh, email encouragements from uh, from places that I've once uh, encountered and all of a sudden they were all on me on Amazon Prime Day. But I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos also has uh, an interesting strategy around disrupting particular industries. His latest one appears to be the pharmaceutical business in the United States in particular. I mean, so in almost in a way, can we expect that he's just going to keep looking for big industries to knock down? For sure. That's how Amazon grows. It Mm. is not necessarily a category leader in any one market, but it is doing extraordinarily well in almost every market. And that just makes it incredibly competitive against Google, against Apple against Walmart and uh, the online pharmaceutical market is a massive market that is ripe for disruption. Yeah. The thing that is curious though, I I was speaking to the CEO of Build Direct based here in Vancouver, which focuses on say home building supplies. And he pointed out that it's actually something that Amazon has not gotten into. They said it's incredibly complicated, which I mean, there's a reason maybe why Build Direct found itself under creditor protection up until a few months ago at that point. But I mean, are, are there still gaps that you anticipate Amazon coming in to, I guess, seize on particular markets, Ali, in your opinion? Are, are there still open areas for it to go in on or, or is this just dominating everything at this point? No, I, I, I mean, I think that's a fair point from the CEO Build Direct. I mean, there's certainly, uh, you know, industries uh, that are a little bit more logistically complicated. Uh, and you know, may, and maybe Amazon is going to have a, a difficult time of uh, pursuing those ones. But you know, there's many, many industries out there that are archaic. Uh, you know, the book industry was for many, many years until Amazon showed up. Uh, you know, the grocery industry is you know, they're targeting that now. Uh, you know, financial services is another area that's been archaic for a long time, and, and they're going quite hot and heavy into that. So I, I think there's you know a number of industries out there that. Uh, you know, they're just sitting around and sort of, uh, you know, sitting back on their heels. And those are the ones that, that Amazon's going to go after heavy. And, and like Emil said, they're very well equipped to be able to dominate that. The, the one thing that Amazon isn't doing um, uh, regularly, although the Whole Foods uh, 
uh, escapade would uh, would give some sort of discredit to this idea, but it's the idea that they're they're not uh, massively acquiring. They seem to depend a great deal, Mel, still on third parties to to work with in all of this. Is it is it going to get to the point though? You think where Amazon really does begin to accumulate large pieces of industry? I see that happening. Yeah, it's. I kind of smile when you call uh, the Whole Foods acquisition an escapade. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> Amazon's model originally was a marketplace where it would connect buyers and sellers and did not have to deal with a lot of the cost centers that are involved in traditional retail. Um, I, I do see Amazon uh, certainly dominating in the B2C industries um, and uh, probably owning more and more of the retail experience. Um, because it can almost just signal that it's maybe going to enter an industry and it can almost destroy a company just with the hint, the rumor, the whisper that it's taking place. We especially saw that with how like pharmacy company stocks were doing after this acquisition when yeah. it got into pillbox. So it's yeah. just, it, it can be a very scary proposition for a lot of these companies. Yeah. I, I think that's especially true for any companies in, in, that are operating online. Mm-hmm. Or, as Ali pointed out, any companies that are ripe for disruption trying to take a business online, then Amazon is stiff competition. Yeah. Ali, I was uh, reading a piece recently uh, about Lacroix, the, uh, the the seltzer producer, which is very, very hip with uh, millennials right now. And like there's a reintroduction of seltzer into the market because it's, you know, no calories and all that. But Amazon just decided it's going to create its own brand and, and undercut them. Um, yeah, that that's the kind of thing it can afford to do with that sort of cash flow and sway. Yeah, I mean, it's also a, a concept that's not new to retail or, or or sort of retail environments because you know we've had that with sort of uh, in Vancouver as well with PC Financial. That's that's sort of a yeah. you know a very well known way to you know get your brand into in front of in front of consumers that are sort of loyal to you. So. I'm not surprised. It'll be very interesting to see how big they get over the course of the next decade. I think that's, you know, I think you've had companies in the past get this big relative to their time, uh, and so this is uh, the sort of sending a, sending a new benchmark. Uh, but I you know, I mean, I think if you go back in the history of the world, uh, there's probably been other companies that at the time were sort of roughly contextually the same size as Amazon today uh, at, at that time, and I'm not sure if they're, you know, they're still the same size, you know, I think all, you know, at, at some point, uh, you know, if, if it, if it gets to a point that the government might, the government might step in and say, you know what, this is actually probably not good for consumers or for business, then they may get broken up at some point. I can see Donald Trump liking to do that pretty soon. Oh he's, yeah. He's not a big fan. Uh, but Emil, the last, last issue on this one, uh, having to do with Alexa and, uh, and, and the echo and echo dot that, uh, that they have, uh, Increasingly, it looks like Alexa is what they're betting a big part of the company on. Uh, there was a time when they were betting on Kindle and then on Fire and all the things like that. But this device appears to be it. Is the programming of Alexa kind of now the next critical step for them? Where you know I can I can get my doctor on the line. I can you know I can you know I can do a number of things uh, in my house that I needed to get out of my house to do before. Oh, absolutely. I think um, this positions Amazon to be ever more competitive with Google. Uh, it provides a you know a greater 
um, connection point to consumers inside their home. It allows them to take advantage of professional services, uh, to do shopping, and, and really turn to Amazon for everything they need, which is in line with Amazon's strategy for consumers is go there and all your needs will be taken care of. Well, if we want to think of a CEO who stands in sharp contrast in terms of public persona to Jeff Bezos, I don't think there's anyone else that we want to talk about other than maybe, say, Elon Musk, at least this week. Has, uh, we've, started, we've, we've turned on him, haven't we? I, people about used to a think, year ago, we were lionizing the guy. Yeah. Now, now it just seems like every week he's done something. He goes from profit to fool in about a, a year. Mm. And just over the weekend, he was calling one of those rescue divers that helped save the soccer team and the coach from that Thai cave, a quote-unquote pedo guy, I, I, apparently calling Vern Unsworth a, a pedophile uh, for living in Thailand at that point. He's a, he's a UK expat. It's because Unsworth had criticized Musk's mini-sub idea, bringing that over to help these people get out of the cave here. And Tesla stocks, well, they're not doing so well. As of Monday, they had fallen at least 10%. And I'm sorry, I take that back. It was not 10%. That's a huge number there. But they did fall significantly over the weekend. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, Ali, I mean, are investors losing confidence in what the CEO of this company is doing just based on his own public persona? Yeah, I mean, I think that's still yet to be seen, Tyler. Uh, but I don't think it, I don't think it's trending well. You know, my my sort of gut feel on the way the last twelve months has gone, and the way uh, the last even three months has gone. Um, you know, I think Tesla itself is going to be in for a rough ride. I think Elon uh, himself is going to be in for a rough ride. He's certainly, I think, the pressure of the public um, the public markets is probably getting to him a little bit. It was very very disappointing. Uh, commentary to hear from him and i think he probably just needs to take some time off probably take, probably needs to take some time away from work yeah uh, because this is uh you know you, you we've seen other sort of celebrity quote-unquote celebrity uh ceos crumble like this and uh you know sometimes they just need time off yeah it i mean it is true that elon musk has on the go about eight or ten projects that are all uh of themselves superhuman in certain respects in a way, does he just need a grown-up in the room every time he decides that he's going to utter a public statement? Well, uh, certainly if there was a grown-up in the room uh, when he made the statements he did, then hopefully that wouldn't have happened. Uh, there is, Unfortunately, there's a lot of incredibly successful and wealthy individuals that could certainly benefit uh, from a grown-up in the room, whether they're in public office or um, the head of a, you know, a tech company. So yeah, Elon is, is who he is. Um, he became rich on his own and he probably did not grow up under the mentorship of someone who, um, who had strong PR skills. But he went to Queens University for goodness sake. Shouldn't that be <laughs> yeah. enough? Yeah. He should have learned all his, you know, polite manners. Kingston, Ontario. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I think what we also wonder though is just going forward, if a lot of CEOs, I, I think it's obvious that a lot of them push back. They, they're not going to be doing, well, they're, assuming they're, this kind of stuff. They're supposed to be eccentric. Stuff. They're supposed to be like way, way, way out of the box things. Yeah. But I mean, at a certain point, I mean, aren't there boards coming to them and saying, look, we're, we're not going to stand for this. Like, what are you doing? Do you actually want to continue leading the company if you are having a, a bad impact on our share prices at this point, Allie? 
Yeah, no, we we just saw this with Papa John's Pizza in the U.S. Yeah. Like this is this is a real uh, a real issue, and I don't think the public's going to stand for it anymore. I just I think the expectation has now gone up, and you know these CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So you, you know you're representing your brand. You are the brand in many cases. In the case of Tesla, Elon is the brand. So you know now he has a board of directors, and the board of directors you know has a has a duty to the shareholders and the public and. Uh, they're just not going to put up with it. I, you know, uh, you know, I, I like I like Elon. I think he's done a lot of really wonderful things. Uh, so, you know, hopefully you can rein it in. But, you know, the last sort of three to six months just haven't been a great trend. And he has to kind of stick to his knitting a certain amount here, Amiel, because the Tesla 3 is proving to be the elusive car. It's going to become far more exclusive than any of us ever thought if they don't find a way to get it into production. <laughs> that being uh, the key piece, yeah, getting yeah. it into production. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 it'll be That's like, an escapade. There'll be like Smithsonian pieces. <laughs> and should they rename it the Tesla Escapade? That's right. Yeah. Or yeah, the no. Tesla almost there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tesla 2.8. Yeah. So. Well, excellent. Uh, Ali, Amiel, always a pleasure talking to you guys. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having us. That's Ali Pordead, CEO of Progressa, and Amiel Lake, entrepreneur-in-residence at E at UBC, as well as the co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher, and don't forget to leave a review. Be sure to find our stories also on print and online at BIV.com. 